Please turn with me in your Bibles now to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, as we continue to worship our God by hearing what He has to say to us in His Word. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 35, and I'll be reading the sermon within, uh, the text within the sermon this morning. Let us pray one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for giving us all that we need for life and godliness. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Help us to hear what your word has to say. Give us ears to hear. Give us, uh, uh, give us a reflection and, and uh, obedience and submission to your word. That we would be not just hearers alone, but those who hear and do your word. That Jesus Christ might be magnified. We pray, Lord, that the words of Jesus might be proclaimed clearly and that your spirit would go before and challenge and convict us of sin in our lives and our need for Christ and the righteousness that you desire of us. Lord, we pray that you be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember when you were a child and you were children, you were kind of playing sports with your different friends. And, uh, you know, especially when, you're, when your team would win, uh, what would you kind of shout, you know? Remember that time we would say, yeah, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. Uh, I don't think I said that too often, but uh, at least I remember hearing others say it. You never heard anyone shout, hey, we're number two, we're number two, we're number two, right? It was always not number one. In fact, no one remembers really who finishes second. We all like to be number one. We all like the glory of being in first place. And while as children it was mostly a matter of vanity, when it comes to the Christian life, the desire to be number one can be destructive and dangerous. For in the Christian life, as we learn in the scriptures, someone else must be number one. That someone, of course, is Jesus Christ. As we read in our call to worship this morning, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Jesus, as the head of the church, is to have first place in everything. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the Christian life is characterized by recognizing that Jesus is first. Sadly, though, as those born with the sinful nature, it is often our tendency to put ourselves first. We prioritize our own will and our, desi- our own desires over others. We welcome people in our lives because of what they can do for us. We pursue various tasks, endeavors, possessions because it pleases us. And thankfully, God sent us His Son to save us from this selfishness and this sin. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God, he called his followers to a life of discipleship, a life where he is first. During Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, Luke records for us how he prepared his disciples. As opposition from the religious leaders increased, so also does Jesus' popularity with the crowds. Many follow along with him, but they did not truly follow him. It is enough for them to associate with Him, to experience some of His benefits, but not to submit to Him. They wanted the benefits, but not the benefactor. Many were not willing to put Him first over all things in their lives. 
And so Jesus addresses the crowd knowing their hearts. And he speaks what we have recorded here in our text. And we find in these words that he speaks quite forceful and strong words. But they are strong words spoken to hardened hearts. For all who would follow him, they're meant to challenge us to count the cost of discipleship. We can outline this passage in three parts. We might simply call them three truths for would-be disciples of Jesus. If you want to be a follower or disciple of Jesus Christ, then here are three truths that I invite those of you who are, who are following or going along with Jesus to count the cost of being his disciples. And I pray that it would challenge your heart and challenge mine as those of us who desire to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look then in point number one. The first, uh, uh, the first truth that we find in this text in verses 25 through 27. And here we find verse 25 to 27, the call to would-be disciples. The call to would-be disciples. And what Jesus calls would-be disciples to do is to put himself, put Jesus first. Let's look at the setting. The setting begins in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, and we'll stop there. Now, just in the preceding passage, Jesus was at a meal with scribes and Pharisees. Now we see in verse 25 that he is on the move again. Uh, back in chapter 7, verse 11, the same verb was used of Jesus traveling to a city called Nain along with his disciples. And a large crowd was going along with him. They were just along for the, for the ride, really. Luke tells us now that he is accompanied by large crowds. Not just a large crowd, but crowd. Not just crowd, but large crowd. Not just a large crowd, but large crowds, plural, of people were following him. They are all going along with him. Everybody wants to be with Jesus. He performs miracles. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. What's more, he teaches with authority. He speaks like none of the other scribes or teachers. He talks about the kingdom of God and, and how it's near. It's no wonder, considering all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said, that he is popular with the, the masses of peak crowds of Israel. And though they go along with him, they do not understand his destination. If they did, they would have likely turned away. Where is Jesus headed? You recall that he is heading to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die on the cross, Luke 9.22 and verse 51. Though Jesus had begun uh, revealing to his disciples where he was headed and why, even they could not grasp it, much less the crowds. Jesus, the Son of God, knows the heart of man, and he understands that though many followed along with him, they were not truly his disciples. So he turns and speaks to the crowd. He addresses the crowds. He calls the crowds to discipleship, to follow him. Three times in this passage, Jesus gives a, a sort of a warning phrase. He uses this phrase, whoever does not do X blank cannot be my disciple. It says in verse 26, verse 27, and verse 33. See, these are characteristics of discipleship that if absent in one's life, reveal that one is not a genuine disciple of Jesus. Now, the word disciple refers simply to a student, someone who is a learner. He learns from a teacher. In this case, the teacher is Jesus. Every follower of Christ is a disciple, one who learns from Jesus. 
who sees him as a master and they are his students. So what are these necessary qualities of those who are Jesus' disciples? We read in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not hate his family and even his own life, he cannot be Jesus' disciple. In a culture where family is valued, this statement is shocking. We wonder if Jesus literally means that one must hate our one's family and life. Is he telling that uh, you and me that we need to hate our mom and dad, hate our brothers and sisters, hate our wife and husband, hate our children? Is that what he's saying? Even hate our lives? Well, if we consider the rest of Scripture, consider this. Children cannot honor father and mother and also hate them. Mark 7, 9, 13, right? Husbands cannot love their wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, 25 and also hate them. Younger women cannot love their husbands and their children, Titus 2.4, and also hate them. See, since Jesus came to fulfill Scripture and not contradict it, Jesus must be speaking here, not literally, but figuratively, in hyperbole. Jesus is saying that one must love Jesus so much more that love for one's family and even one's life is hatred in comparison. It's a matter of priority. Is Jesus your first love? Is He the one whom you love more than anyone or anything else in this world? Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said in a very similar warning, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So whoever does not love Jesus more than anyone, even oneself, then he cannot be Jesus' disciple. If you are part of a family, do you love them more than Jesus? If you're married, do you love your spouse more than Jesus? If you're a parent, do you love your children more than Jesus? Is there any human relationship that you love more than Jesus? You can't love anyone more than Jesus because you will eventually lose them. And worst of all, when you lose them, you'll find that you love them more than Jesus. According to Jesus, you won't even have Him. You won't have Jesus. But if you love Jesus more, even when you lose your loved ones, you will still have your greatest treasure. And I'm mindful, and just having said this, that I know some of you have, over the past few months, have lost loved ones. I'm praying that the comfort of knowing Jesus Christ may be yours that He may be your greatest treasure and that He may be a consolation and a comfort to you in the days ahead. Jesus follows in verse 27 with a second necessary quality of His disciples. Verse 27, we read, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus has stated this very principle positively back in Luke 9.23 where he said, he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, the cross that is, that is the pictured here was a symbol of suffering and death. And those who were condemned to be crucified had to carry uh, this big wooden beam of their cross to the place of crucifixion. In fact, that's what Jesus did. To take up one's cross then is to be willing to suffer and to die. 
Today, we might say that you need to be committed to Christ, even if it means ridicule, shame, suffering, and even death. It is a, to carry one's cross is a willingness to suffer and sacrifice anything for the sake of following Christ. It may mean martyrdom, as many of our brethren around the world experience. It may mean losing your job, your home, your family, your friends, your reputation. To take up your cross is a life of sacrifice for Christ. And whoever does not live sacrificially for Jesus cannot be Jesus' disciple. Because Jesus came to be a sacrifice. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. And we who follow him must follow in his steps. These two necessary qualities that we find here, to love Jesus more than anyone else, and to live sacrificially for Jesus, are really making one specific point. That is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then he must have first place in your life. You must put Jesus first. If Jesus does not have first place in your life, then you cannot be his disciple. Because of these strong statements in verse 26-27, some interpreters have tried to uh, soften Jesus' calling here by making a distinction between disciples, a disciple and a Christian. They incorrectly teach that disciples are somehow a more higher or spiritual or devoted class than a Christian. You might become a Christian first, and then maybe later on you might become a disciple. But in this incorrect theology, one could be saved and never be a disciple. But this isn't what Jesus teaches in his word. Recall back in uh, verse nine and uh, Luke 9, 23 to 27. After Jesus said... In verse 23, where he says you must take up your cross and daily follow me, he explained it in verse 24 through 27, really as a matter of salvation. We just read verse 24. He says, for, so his explanation, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it, and so on, the rest of the text. See, in Jesus' teaching, his followers are his disciples. A Christian is a disciple of Christ, is someone who learns from Christ, who follows Christ. The early church recognized this as well, for Luke recorded in Acts eleven twenty six that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They're, they're equated, they're equivalent. The call to discipleship is a call to put Jesus Christ first in one's life. And this is not optional. This is required of all of Jesus' disciples. That he must be first. I don't know if you've ever been I kind of noticed on bumper stickers and on t-shirts. There was that, I, I noticed it a while back and I thought, oh, that's cool. What is this brand that's on these bumper stickers on, 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 uh, on t-shirts and shirts and clothing called Hecky? You know, I was looking at it. It looked like Hecky. It's always kind of looked really cool. And maybe you've heard of it, Hecky. You know, so I Googled it and I realized, oh, duh. It actually says he is greater than I. And that's some Hawaiian food, Hawaiian uh, clothing line or something like that. But it, it, they're a Christian clothing line. And it simply is that reminder that Jesus, He is greater than I. He's greater than us. He is first. And we follow Him. I love that shirt. I should go buy one. Anyways, um, this leads to the second truth for would-be disciples of Christ. And that is we find in verse 8, 28 to 33, the challenge to would-be disciples. The challenge to would do. And the challenge that Jesus makes to them is that they ought to count the cost. 
Jesus in these verses challenges those who follow along to count the cost of being his disciple if they want to be true disciples of Christ. He does so through two illustrations or two parables. We find them, we read in verse 28 to 32. Look there with me. Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Well, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The first illustration uses the building of a tower. And the second illustration uses that of going to battle with another king. Both convey a similar message. Both convey the importance of deliberate calculation to make sure that one can accomplish what one hopes to do. In the case of building a tower, a man wants to build a tower to be added as the tower added to his home or added to his vineyard. It's his own personal tower. So if you want to build one, you have to calculate the cost first to see if you can complete it. You can see that you will. it will require sitting down to do so. So it implies deliberation and diligence. We don't build towers generally, but we sometimes we make additions to our home. You don't just quickly just draw something up. You actually sit down and think about it. Do I have enough money? What, do I, what are the steps I need to take? It won't be a careless calculation, but a careful one. Unless, as Jesus puts it out, you, you run out of money halfway. You find out you don't have enough, and then you have a half-built house or half-built half addition. And people will laugh at you, and they'll ridicule, and you'll be ashamed. Similarly, in the illustration of going to battle with another king, Jesus tells us about this. A wise king is going to be one who carefully deliberates and calculates whether he can win the battle. Notice again that the, sin, the king is described as sitting down to consider. It's deliberate, it's diligent. If he's outnumbered, then he will wisely ask for peace, lest he be defeated in battle and lose everything. So Jesus, in these two illustrations, is simply challenging his would-be disciples to carefully consider whether they are ready to take on the priority and sacrifice of following Jesus. To follow Jesus. They are eager to follow him now, but they haven't really considered what it means to be his disciples. And he's inviting them to sit down and calculate the costs. Consider what it means to follow him, even as they're hopping along for the ride. In case it wasn't clear by his first two statements, Jesus makes a third uh, and final summary statement of the necessary qualities of a disciple in verse 33. And there he reads, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. The cost of being uh, Jesus' disciple is everything. Every possession that you own. Whoever does not give up all his possessions cannot be Jesus' disciple. 
we are to no longer think of anything as belonging to us, but as all belonging to Jesus Christ, along with our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean that we immediately give everything away, but it does mean that they that we've already that they are all that they all belong to Jesus and we're prepared to give it away as he wills for our lives. As Paul wrote in Romans 12:1, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. See, our lives, our possessions, our bodies belong to Christ because he died for us. And while our possessions belong in our care. We really ought to see ourselves as stewards of it. We willingly and faithfully use it according to the Master's will for His glory. Now, this last and final kind of quality have made some wonder is if Jesus is teaching here salvation by works. That He's teaching that you, if you give away all your possessions, then you will be His disciple. Then you'll be saved. Well, that's one has to be careful and examine carefully examine what Jesus is saying here, in logic as well as in mathematics. And you can you math teachers out there can can correct me if I'm wrong. There's something called the law of contrapositive, or the contra, contraposition. That is, if A, then B is true. Then it follows logic that if not B, then not A. Right? I don't know if you guys remember that. I remember that in, back in my math class a long, long time ago, as well as vice versa. So applying this logic to Jesus', Jesus statement, if you do not give up all your possessions, that's not A, then you are not his disciple, not B. But if you are, so it follows then that if you are his disciple, B, then you do give up all your possessions. Hey, I just realized I should have put this up on a slide for you guys. And this is important because Jesus is not saying logically, according to logic, he's not saying, no, saying what's known as the inverse. That is, if you give up all your possessions, A, then you are his disciple, B. That would be a contradiction of logic. That doesn't necessarily follow. And that would be work salvation, but that's not what Jesus is saying logically. Truly, and if all that just went over your head, don't worry about it. But we're simply, we all know that the scripture, rest of the scripture teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by works so that no one may boast. No works can lead to our salvation, even if, if we did every, give everything away. Rather, those who are saved because of their submission to Christ and love for Him, they will see everything that they own as belonging to Christ and be willing to give it all to the Lord and to whomever else he wills for us to give it to. I remember way back in seminary days, and I've told this illustrated before, I, I believe, but there was this guy in seminary when we, when we needed, my roommate and I, when we needed to move something, we asked this guy if he could borrow his uh, fellow classmate, his truck. And he said, sure, no problem, it's, it's the Lord's truck. <laughs> and that was the, kind of the first time that I really, it, it dawned on me that um, we should see our possessions as really belonging to the Lord. And he was willing to always lend his truck out to anyone who needed to use it because it was the Lord's truck. If anyone else had need of it and he knew of it, he would make his truck available for them to help. In the same way, we should see our trucks, our cars, belonging to the Lord. It's the Lord's car. Our house is the Lord's house. 
Our money is the Lord's money. Our food is the Lord's food. Our family is the Lord's family. Our children are, are the Lord's children. Our body, our lives are the Lord's body and the Lord's life. It all belongs to Him. And therefore, if it belongs to Him, we should use it in accordance with His will for His glory to serve Him, to accomplish His purposes. And that leads us to the, the Jesus challenge, to the final point. Jesus' challenge is followed then by a final warning to His listeners. And here in uh, verses 34 to 35, I, uh, we find the caveat for would-be disciples. The caveat for would-be disciples. And the caveat is, don't be useless salt, as we read here. Verse 34 and 35. Therefore, Jesus says, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus ends with a third illustration, this time of salt. He uses this illustration, this concept, two other times in his ministry. Matthew 5.13, Mark 9.50. And he says that salt is good. Jesus says salt is good. And everybody knew that salt is good. Not since that it was morally good, like uh, salt is good and pepper is evil or something like that. But, but he's talking about salt is qualitatively good in terms of its purpose. It is good. It's useful for the particular purposes that it exists for. In the olden days, in Jesus' days, salt was a, a commodity. It was a, a valuable commodity in, in many ancient cultures because it had multiple purposes. It was used as seasoning, as fertilizer, as a preservative. In Israel, uh, salt was could be most abundantly found around the Dead Sea because the Sea of Galilee would flow in the Dead Sea and all the water would come and as the, as the, um, it would get very, salt, very salty water and as the sun kind of heats it up, it would uh, sap, take out the water and what you have left would be the salt crystals. But these salt crystals were, because, were often not of the highest quality because in this lake where there was other minerals, other chemicals and it would be adulterated, it would be polluted in a sense by these, how these other minerals in it. So, the salt that they had back then, it's not like a salt today, but it was a salt that could easily become stale and could easily become tasteless because of its impurities. The salt could lose its saltiness. And when that happens, essentially, it couldn't, Jesus says and points out that you can't make it salty again. You can't make it back into salt. For in truth, what remains really isn't even salt. It's just those impurities. What remains is useless for anything. Jesus puts it, it's not even useful for fertilizer. It's not even useful for the manure pile. It's just to be thrown away. When he says it is to be thrown away, he follows with these words. Jesus, a call to carefully listen. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen carefully to what he is saying about the danger of being useless salt. You will have, since you are of no use, you will be simply thrown away. The implication from Jesus that is, is that among the crowds of people who followed him, because they had not put Jesus first, nor counted the cost of giving up all to follow Jesus, they were in danger of being useless salt, only fit to be thrown out. 
And this terminology of being thrown out was used earlier in Luke 13, 25 to 28, of those who associated with Jesus but did not submit to him. And they, Jesus describes as being on the outside when the master shuts the door. There are those who are will, in the kingdom of God will be on the outside watching the fathers and prophets inside, but they themselves are standing on the outside. They, these are those who are the invited guests who will not taste of Jesus' banquet in the kingdom, Luke 14.24. Useless salt are thrown out and left outside the kingdom of God. Jesus would say uh, in Matthew 5.13, here's quite similar words. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Brothers and sisters, you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ are to be useful salt by which the Lord glorifies Himself and draws others to Himself. So then, Are you being useful salt or useless salt for the Lord? Is He using you or are you using Him? Are you just coming to Him for all the benefits that you can receive from Him? Or are you actually coming to Him because of Him? Is He the master of your life or are you the master still? And you can tell the answer to these questions by looking at how you use your possessions, how you use your your treasures. Do you use your possessions to serve and please God? Or do you use your possessions to serve and please yourself? Yes, God gives us all things to enjoy. And it can be enjoyed to the glory of God. But part of that joy is the joy of giving it and sharing with others. To do good, to share with those in need, is more blessed to give than to receive. We have been blessed with our possessions so that we might be a blessing to others. If we're not, then what use are we to the Lord? that's a warning that's the caveat for us to consider God is our creator and he ought always to be first in every one of our lives by the very fact that he has created us but in the fall when Adam and Eve sinned all mankind began to put ourselves first. It's manifest in our selfishness, in our greed, in our own pursuit of our own desires. And our selfishness, our sin, leads us continually to rebel against God and incur His wrath. Yet in God's sovereign love and plan, He sent us His Son to die in our place for our sins. And He rose from the grave for our salvation. And therefore, whoever returns to God, whoever repents, whoever recognizes that they, them, they, that they have put themselves first and instead recognize that God needs to be first, whoever turns back to God and 
believes upon His Son, His provision of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, will receive forgiveness and a new life. This is a free gift that is received through no work of our own. There is no deed that we can do, no no act of sacrifice, no giving of our wealth, no living of our life can earn or deserve our salvation and forgiveness in Christ. It is a freely offered gift to all those who believe in Him. But you must receive Him. You must turn from being number one and confess Him as number one, as Lord. And the question I have for all of you is this. Are you going along with Jesus or are you following Him as number one? Who is number one, you or Him? Have you received and confessed Jesus as Lord of your life? Have you believed upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins? I know many of you probably joining us are probably considering this. You're thinking about it. And Jesus would have you consider the cost. Yes, it's, it's a free gift because it cost God His Son. And to those who, love, who receive this free gift, we will, as our spiritual service of worship, that which is a natural outflow of our love for Him, we will give back to God everything for His glory. Consider the cost. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I invite you today to consider and turn from your sin and turn to recognize that Jesus needs to be first in your life. And He died for your sin so that you might put your trust in Him and be saved. For all of us who have believed in Christ, in this, we have a new life in Christ. And in this new life in Christ, we are to be disciples who learn to live with, with Jesus being first. He is to be number one. We are with Him. We follow Him. We serve Him. We live for Him. We die for Him. To the extent that you put Christ first in your life, you will be His disciple, useful for His glory, living a life of joyful purpose. Question number two. I ask as we conclude is, is Jesus Christ your greatest love? Is He more than, is He more precious to you than any other relationship or possession in life? I challenge you, encourage you to quietly where you're at, when you're at home, just think, consider it. Talk it over with your family even. Talk it over with your children. Teach them that I love you, but I love Jesus more. And you know what? I love you, but Jesus loves you more. Therefore, I hope you will love Jesus more than even you love your love for mom and dad.
Jesus Christ, your greatest love? Third, I'll ask you, I'll leave a third question for consideration. Is how are you being useful to the Lord? How is He using your life and your possessions for His glory and for the good of others? Consider that. Let us be disciples of Christ who put Him always first, who live our lives for Him, who take up our cross daily, follow Him, who use our possessions for His service, for His glory, to live our lives for Him who died for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him to die in our place. Thank you, Father, for these words that he has spoken and recorded for us here in Luke. We pray that we would hear what you have to say to us. First, Lord, we pray that if anyone's out here who is just simply following along with you, that they would each examine their hearts so they might carefully count the costs of following you and they would consider it a greater joy to follow you and to give up all than to hold on to all that they have and not follow you. Lord, help them to consider that the greatest joy that they will have and know will be found through knowing and loving Jesus Christ because he first loved us and gave his life for us. And the Lord, we pray for those of us who have, who have received Christ, that we will be continually examine our lives to see how we live for you. There will be people who truly put Christ first, not only when we believed upon him, but throughout our days, every day. And help us to, to use not only our lives, but use our possessions for your service, for your glory. Lord, help us to heed the warning that, you're, that Jesus has given to us. That whoever does not give up his possessions, whoever does not take up his cross, whoever does not love Christ more than family or life itself cannot be your his disciple let us take these words to heart lord cause us to be convicted of it challenged by it to examine our life in light of it and lord may we all humbly soberly consider what your word has to say that we might not be those 
worth. In the end, when the kingdom comes, thrown out, left outside, looking in. O Lord, increase our love for Jesus. Increase our hatred of all other things, of self even, of life itself. That our greatest treasure, our greatest love would be Christ and Christ alone by far. That nothing else would draw our eyes and draw our desires. That we would live holy and passionate pursuit of Christ and His truths and His ways. That you would use us as instruments for your glory, no matter what the cost, no matter what you call us to do. Help us be willing to sacrifice when you call us. Help us to use our possessions to do good, to share with others, to further your kingdom. for your glory. Lord, help us be watchful for that sinful tendency to still put ourselves first. But Lord, throughout our days, may we be characterized, may we be found to have the quality of those who put Christ first in our lives. For He is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have first place in everything. To this end we pray, for your glory, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.